culture war raging across America, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell will be remembered as the modern-day Ambrose Burnside. Union Major General Burnside is widely regarded as the most inept soldier of America's Civil War. His behavior and tactics during the Battle of Antietam were so incompetent that a bridge at the battlefield, Burnside Bridge, was named in his honor. Yesterday's Super Bowl 56 was Goodell's Antietam. Rebel forces bullied Goodell into turning television's largest platform and sports' greatest meritocracy into a showcase for the left's tokenism and quota system that is cleverly branded as diversity, inclusion, and equity. The actual game was reduced to a prop a stage to promote the left's vision of equality, a utopia where a handful of powerful elites select winners and losers based on skin color, sexuality, and gender. The diversity, inclusion, and equity coronation was kicked off by President Joe Biden's pregame speech. The president blasted the league for not hiring more black head coaches, saying, quote, <clears throat> they haven't lived up to what they committed to and lived up to being open about hiring minorities to run teams, Biden told NBC News anchor Lester Holt. The whole idea that a league that is made up of so many athletes of color as well as so diverse that there's not enough African-Americans qualified coaches to manage these NFL teams, it just seems to me that it's a standard that they'd want to live up to. It's not a requirement of law, but it's a requirement that I think of just some generic decency. Generic decency, what a weird choice of words. To me, that sounds like generic charity, but Biden's calling it generic decency, like that's the mandate, generic decency. So Biden got the ball rolling, Goodell and NBC took it from there. Approximately 30 minutes before kickoff, singers Mary Mary performed the so-called Black National Anthem in the parking lot of SoFi Stadium. Minutes later, tennis legend and LGBT icon Billie Jean King entered the on-field festivities. She narrated a video about Title IX and inclusion. She then did the pregame coin toss. Before Sunday, I was unaware of any connection between Billie Jean King and professional football. Huh. Greeting King for the coin toss was the game's lead referee, Ron Torbort, the third black referee to oversee a Super Bowl. After the coin toss, a mixed race singer, Janae Aiko, performed America the Beautiful. Aiko was followed by black female country music singer, Mickey Guyton, whose claim to fame is a George Floyd-inspired song. Aiko and Guyton are not household names. No one is gonna compare them to Whitney Houston. We were then introduced to NBC's 
two female sideline reporters, the great Michelle Tofoya and Catherine Tappan. So far, by my calculation and estimation, Tafoya is the only person I feel confident was there based on merit. Everyone else feels like an agenda, including The Rock. And The Rock's little stupid, whatever that was, Michael Buffer impersonation. He's out on the field right before kickoff. Both teams are out on the field, and The Rock is out there shouting and hyping up both teams. Oh, and then the Pepsi halftime show put the exclamation point on the diversity, inclusion, and equity agenda. Let me be clear. I enjoyed the halftime show. I grew up listening to rappers Dr. Dre, Snoop, Eminem, 50 Cent, and soul singer Mary J. Blige. But gangster rappers are not appropriate for Super Bowl halftime. Gangster rap, whether you like it or not, is lyrical pornography is to be ingested in the privacy of your headphones. Dr. Dre is Hugh Hefner. Snoop is Johnny the Wild Holmes. Eminem is Ron the Hedgehog Jeremy. 50 Cent, well, he's 250 Cent now. <laughs> I get that rap music is the best-selling, most popular form of music, but it's just dumbed-down garbage. If you can talk, you can perform it. Popularity does not signify greatness. In this era, it signifies perversion. Porn is the most popular form of movie making. Should we now give porn Oscars? Nothing is more downloaded, more on the internet. That doesn't mean pornography should be placed on our largest platforms. Dre and Snoop hosted a gangster party, a celebration of gang culture on the Super Bowl stage. It was billed as the mainstreaming of black culture. Do white people claim Hugh Hefner, Johnny the Wild Holmes, and Ron the Hedgehog Jeremy as beacons of white culture? They're the kings of movie making. Their movies, their pornography is the most accessed, downloaded thing, you know, in America. Super Bowl 56 is what Roger Goodell's leadership has wrought. Off the field, the NFL is adhering to a script dictated by the diversity, inclusion, and equity gods. The league is adding female coaches to every staff. It is pushing out established referees to make room for women and black men. Soon, it will adopt new measures to further pressure ownership to hire black head coaches. General Goodell keeps saying diversity, inclusion, and equity are the league's highest priorities. It's a deadly script that will erode the integrity of the game. The erosion is happening on the field. Seven straight NFL playoff games were decided by three points or less or in overtime. NBC called it the Super 7. Football fans are going more and more concerned with the suspect officiating that made it all happen. Rigged is the ad adjective of choice over super. The Bengals led by four points late in Sunday's Super Bowl. The Rams drove 71 yards and then stalled at the Cincinnati eight-yard line. On third down, Los Angeles quarterback Matt Stafford threw incomplete to Cooper Cup. The reps bailed out the Rams by ignoring a false start penalty on three LA linemen and calling Cincy linebacker Logan Wilson for defensive holding. 
The non-call and call changed the ending of the game. The Rams now had first and goal at the Cincinnati four. The reps put Los Angeles in position to win the game. The Rams took advantage. See, when you embrace a script off the field, eventually you have to embrace a script on the field. When you bite the poisonous fruit, the whole garden is corrupted. Under General Goodell's leadership, the NFL has rejected the values that made it the strongest force in popular culture. Football is now in the business of manipulating and controlling outcomes off the field. A handful of powerful elites ignore merit and decide who officiates, who tosses the coin, who sings, and who reports on the games. It sounds harmless and inconsequential. It's the Goodell Bridge to chaos and racial division. Merit has been replaced by agenda. Suspect officiating and close scores will not mask the decline in competition and performance forever. Uh, yesterday, NFL star and Stanford grad Richard Sherman made great use of his black privilege. Sherman announced his retirement from football and launched his TV broadcasting career by climbing on the back of Super Bowl winning quarterback Matt Stafford. Sherman took a massive dump on the idea of the Rams Super Bowl victory, justifying Stafford's candidacy for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. A handful of broadcasters on ESPN and the NFL Network floated the idea of Stafford wearing a gold jacket. Sherman filed a strong objection over Twitter, saying, quote, writing, quote, the Hall of Fame bar is incredibly low right now, like a participation trophy. No all-decade team, no all-pro, no MVP, one Pro Bowl, not even MVP of the Super Bowl, never considered the best in any year he played. At least Matt Ryan has an MVP. Sherman went back and forth with people defending uh, Stafford. He added, all pro is a measuring stick. All decade is a measuring stick. Those show you you were considered best at your position during the time you played. If you were not in that discussion, you definitely shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame consideration. In a different tweet, Sherman said, there's no measuring stick that makes Stafford a Hall of Famer other than playing in the most passer happy decade in NFL history. Inflated numbers make every quarterback that starts 10 plus years a Hall of Famer. Mm. Richard Sherman, every word of that critique is 1000% accurate. I agree with every single word. The Hall of Fame has lowered the standard for induction. Very good players are being enshrined alongside, alongside all-time greats. Stafford, at the moment, is not worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. Sherman's commentary is fair. It's just extremely unusual coming from an active NFL player, especially a player as accomplished as Richard Sherman. Stafford and Sherman are peers. They're the same age. Their careers overlap. There's a fraternity among NFL players. They're generally highly reluctant to criticize each other in a straightforward manner. Unless they're in the process of transitioning to a second lucrative career.
Richard Sherman is done as a player. He finished the 2021 season on injured reserve for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Bucs picked him up in October. He played his last game in mid-December. Since then, Sherman has focused on his podcast. A week before the Super Bowl, on his podcast, Sherman began his attack on Stafford's legacy. Those comments were mostly ignored. Sherman aired his Stafford critique on Twitter so that the media would notice, particularly media executives. A few years ago, it was a foregone conclusion that Sherman would easily transition into a TV broadcasting career. That was before cameras caught Sherman terrorizing the home of his wife and in-laws in July of 2021. Sherman wrestled with police. He was eventually arrested and charged with driving under the influence, endangering roadway workers, resisting arrest, and domestic violence related to counts of malicious mischief and criminal trespass. The incidents raised questions about Sherman's mental stability and undermined his prospects of landing a high-priced, cushy studio TV job. Enter Matt Stafford. The Rams quarterback offered Sherman an ideal opportunity to remind television execs why they coveted his services before the domestic dispute. Sherman has been on the radar of TV networks since his 2014 NFC Championship post-game interview when he shocked Fox Sports sideline reporter Aaron, Aaron Rodgers with a boisterous attack on 49ers receiver Michael Crabtree. Take a listen for yourself. That's heading down to the field, and Aaron Andrews. Joe, thank you so much. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to shut it for you real quick. L.O.B. All right, before... And Joe, back over to you. <laughs> It's arguably the most famous post-game interview in the history of sports. Maybe when Steve Kim comes on, he can get throw out some other examples. I don't know of anything more infamous than that. It established Sherman as the loudest mouth in football and football's answer to Charles Barkley. It was easy to imagine Sherman earning five to 10 million a year talking football. That's quite the football golden parachute. Thanks to the domestic incident, things are much trickier for Sherman. Enter Matt Stafford. The Rams quarterback offered Sherman the perfect opportunity to promote his podcast and tempt TV executives. Criticizing Stafford is low risk. He's white. His wife once criticized Colin Kaepernick's kneeling and complained that Michigan's mask mandates were authoritarian, plus, at this moment, Stafford's resume is completely unworthy of Hall of Fame consideration. Richard Sherman can't lose. Publicly ripping Stanford is a win-win situation for Richard Sherman. It's good controversy. It's good trouble, as John Lewis would say. It overshadows his controversy. The, the video of him trying to bulldoze his father-in-law's front door, this video is hard to forget. Oh, my God. 
as of today, Ray has not come through. Uh, but Richard Sherman certainly wanted to pick, Ray, I believe it was his father-in-law. Uh, the criticism of Stafford's uh, demonstrates Sherman's ability to state opinions that drive conversation on other platforms. Sherman's handlers will take the stories written about the reaction to his staff, uh, Stafford comments and show them to media executives as proof that the media has moved on and moved beyond his domestic incident. It's all forgotten. Sherman's next publicity stunt will be to take a strident political stance or accuse someone white of racism. Maybe he will offer strong words in support of Brian Flores and his discrimination lawsuit against the NFL. Richard Sherman was supposed to be the left-wing Charles Barkley. He is in the process of rehabilitating his broadcasting career. Stafford is just a pawn in Sherman's personal chess game. Who knows? Tom Brady, his former Buccaneers teammate, could be Sherman's next chess move. Look, I want to summarize and, and buttress or broaden my point or clarify some of my point about freedom, opportunity, and self-determination versus this new standard we have of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And, and that same talking points in Canada as we have here. Diversity, inclusion, and equity aren't really merit-based. A group of elites, a group of people in power get to hand out opportunities and rewards and, and benefits. That's what diversity, inclusion, and equity is about, that there's a group of people that are so special, so elite, so godlike, that they get to determine outcomes. And the reason I said freedom, opportunity, and self-determination are connected, in my view, to Christianity. Because if you adopt Christian principles and then pursue freedom, opportunity, and self-determination, you'll win in this country. Barring something crazy happening to you or bad luck, mis some kind of unforeseen misfortune, the statistics are overwhelming that if you adopt and apply these Christian principles, regardless of your color, this country, for the last 60, 70 years, but I would say even before that, ever since the emancipation, you would die. Now again, there were laws, Jim Crow's, and I get it, that people's uh, freedom were restricted, but not their success. Everybody loves to talk about Black Wall Street in Tulsa. That was before we eradicated uh, Jim Crow laws. Black people were having tremendous success in America, despite Jim Crow laws. And that's not me defending Jim Crow laws by any stretch of the imagination. What it is defending is if you adopt Christian principles and pursue freedom, opportunity, and self-determination, this country, these, the, our founding documents, and this will reward you. And the statistics are overwhelming. If you 
get married, graduate high school, and avoid criminal activity. There's virtually no chance of you living in poverty in this country. The stats, the data, it's the research, it doesn't matter your color. Graduate high school and get married and avoid criminal activity, you will not live in poverty in America. You have a very good chance of being successful. And so when I start getting married, that's about family. Building that structure that God intended for us all to live in, or most of us, not all, but most of us. I don't think Paul ever got married, but anyway, you adopt these principles, America works for you. If you don't adopt these principles, you will spend the rest of your life hoping that some liberal, black or white, will take pity on you and give you diversity, inclusion, and equity. My father did not need racism to go away to build a nice life in America. My mother didn't need racism to go away to build a nice life in America. We have this whole thing of like, we don't really believe God and Jesus is enough. We think the love of white people, <laughs> that solves everything. And so I'm just, when, when you look at Canon, this will all be good later in the show when we have, well, we got, Jamel Giovanni coming on, he lives in Canada. But Pastor Bobby Harrington is from Canada. I've had conversations with him about how Canada went from a religious-based society to a secular society. And that's why they have a uh, prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who's a dictator and a tyrant and is freezing the assets, bank accounts of these truckers who are practicing civil disobedience, not causing any real trouble. They're locking up people for honking their horns. They're talking about seizing bank accounts. They shut down GoFundMes in support of these truckers who don't want to have a vaccine mandate. Most of the truckers are vaccinated. They just don't want it mandated. Because they actually had actually bought into the concept, idea of freedom. That they get to decide what goes into their body, not the government. And, and we can focus on the COVID aspect of this conversation, but we would actually get lost into what's really going on. This is about control. This is about Christians are very hard to control. They love freedom. They trust God, not man. And so that makes it very hard for man to control a Christian or a believer in any religion, really. 
But the elites across the globe, Justin Trudeau to Joe Biden, to the people in China, and, and the way China's, Justin Trudeau, there's video, and I, I wish I had asked for it, maybe we'll get it before the end of the show, uh, where he talks about his respect for the way things are done and operated in China. The elites have decided that freedom and that people doing what they want and exercising their free will is in the way of human progress. And so they want to take freedom away and get everybody addicted to the government and the government and a handful of elites get to decide who has success in this country. And they're going to decide it based on some quota system that they establish. I don't want any parts of that. I want to determine my level of success. I want to embrace the religious principles that I was taught as a child, apply those, and the statistics are overwhelming. I will succeed in this country, and so would you. What's going on in Canada, and again, it's going on here in America as well. It's just a test run. This Justin Trudeau, when, when Fidel Castro died, overwhelming, glowing words for Fidel Castro. The guy has told you exactly who he is. Loves China, loves Fidel Castro. Uh, Michelle Tafoya. She quit America's number one TV show to help a black man win the governor's office in Minnesota. She'll soon be castigated as racist, misguided, and stupid. That's the state of this country's corporate and social media-led racial discourse. The cost of choosing the wrong political team is your public reputation. Tafoya's new boss, Kendall Qualls, is a Republican. And despite his black skin, black wife, and black children, Qualls is just another black face of white supremacy. And wait for it, that makes Tafoya a proud girl and a potential insurrectionist. Tafoya exited NBC's Football Night in America, where she served for 11 years as its sideline reporter, so she could comfortably express her political views, co-chair Qualls' bid for governor, and fight the leftists rolling back this nation's racial progress. Take a look at this clip of Tafoya last night on Tucker Carlson's show. And no, NBC did not encourage this. They did not force this. This has been on my mind. I've been waking up every day with a palpable pull at my gut that my side, my view, my my middle ground kind of moderate viewpoint is not being represented yeah. to the rest of the world, I didn't feel. And um, and so rather than, you know, just banging it out on Twitter or Instagram every day, I thought I've got to do something. I have benefited greatly from the American dream. And I feel like for the sake of my kids and because I so love this country, I've got to start giving back. We all need to start giving back. 
Too many of us have taken the spoils of American exceptionalism for granted. We have failed to protect the progress won by Dr. Martin Luther King's generation. We've ignored President Kennedy's plea to ponder what we can do for our country. We've become entitled. We assume the racial discord festering in our society will just go away. It won't. Racial division is the primary power retention strategy of the Democratic Party, big tech, and media elites. Tafoya walked away from a seven-figure job to join the fight to save America. On his campaign webpage, Qualls attacks the way Minnesota politicians handled the George Floyd aftermath, the defund the police movement, and the left's race-based strategy. Uh, on his site, quote, Americans are tired of being bullied by the left and exhausted by constant accusations of systemic racism. In fact, this is the least racist period in our country's history. My parents and grandparents would have loved to have grown up in, Amer in the America I grew up in. We are not going to be the generation that lost America. We're going to be the generation that saved it, restored it, and passed it on to the next generation. Mm. Michelle Tafoya has joined something really big. She's bo her bold move is one of the most courageous acts I've ever seen from a high profile celebrity. Let me repeat, she quit America's most popular TV show to join a fight that will put her in the crosshairs of a global political movement that annihilates the reputations of its adversaries. Here's another clip from Tafoya, check it out. I don't care if I'm attacked. Um, I really am not afraid of that. And I guess I feel like so many people now are afraid. Yeah. And I'm not. Um, listen, I know there are repercussions for whatever I choose to say. Uh, I, and I've talked to my kids' school about it. You know, please don't hold this against my kids. I'm speaking for me. I'm speaking for my family. But please don't hold this against my kids. But this is what I really believe. I think I speak for a lot of people, like you said, Tucker. And a lot of these people, my friends, are afraid to repost things that I've posted or you know, get into political conversations, they are, and they've said it, I'm afraid. I don't want to get in these arguments with my friends, with my boss, with my colleagues. This is the most terrifying thing in the world to me right now, that people are afraid to talk. The attacks on Tafoya started last night. Without a hint of irony or self-awareness, Former ESPN host Jamel Hill tweeted, imagine having a high profile, I'm sorry, imagine leaving a high profile job over a made up issue. Does, Mich does Michelle Tafoya even know what CRT is? Does she have kids in school being taught CRT? Can she provide any examples? End quote. Imagine being so clueless that you, Jamel Hill, can't recognize Tafoya tapped into the same energy, emotion, and feeling that caused you, Jamel Hill, to leave ESPN to join Donald Trump resistance. Hill has no idea that many people, black and white, believe framing Trump as a Hitler-like racist is a made-up issue. 
Gill has never been much of a journalist or a reporter, but Tafoya stated her critical race theory case during a controversial interview on The View a month or two ago, and she repeated her case on Tucker Carlson Wednesday night. Tafoya has kids in school who are being segregated and driven away from each other based on racial differences. She said on Tucker Carlson, it breaks my heart that my kids are being taught that skin color matters. In an exchange with Whoopi Goldberg on The View, Tafoya spelled out, shared this story about what was going on with her kids. Look for yourself. <laughs> my kids in school, there is a big, big focus on the color of your skin. How and old my are children, your children? My children are now uh, 16 and 13. Okay, in what it's, way? It's been going on since they were in lower school, mm -hmm. all right? And it is that there are affinity groups on campus for... Mm -hmm. my, my, my son's first best friend was a little African-American boy. They were inseparable. Mm -hmm. Get to a certain age, they start having what's called an affinity group, which means you go for lunch and pizza with people who look like you. Suddenly, my son wasn't hanging out with him anymore. His next best friend was a little Korean boy. Years, inseparable. He started going to his affinity groups. Why are we even teaching that the color of the skin matters? Because to me, what matters is your character and your values. Yes, but you know, you live in the United States. You know that color of skin has been mattering to people. Can't for, we for change years. it that it well, doesn't? Well, we, we need white people to step up and do that. But I think that we, they've been doing that since the Civil War. And no, I'm not saying no, it's perfect. No, no, no. Okay, I'm sorry. Whoopi Goldberg is now some sort of history expert and knows everything about what white people are or aren't doing, what they have or haven't been doing. Cut Michelle Tafoya off. She's tr trying to, it's a two-way street. Trying to act like racial reconciliation is all on one group because of what their ancestors did 150 years ago is stupid. Getting along, integrating, it's a two-way street. Both cars have to be driving towards each other. If one car is driving away from each other, the other person and the other person's trying to catch up and they're saying, nope, not gonna do it. Not unless you drop to your knees, kiss my ass and give me money. You don't have to agree with Tavoya's point of view but anyone with a modicum of intelligence and honesty can make sense of her rationale and acknowledge the courage of what she's doing. Jamel Hill called President Trump a racist. Her comment did not jeopardize her reputation. She didn't say anything remotely original. She was mostly celebrated for saying it. She's been offered jobs and speaking engagements for unleashing an ad hominem attack against the president. Hill gets mean tweets for being a Trump critic. Tafoya must worry about how her kids will be treated at school. There's a huge difference between Jamel Hill and Michelle Tafoya. One is an opportunist, the other is a patriot. One wants to promote racial division, the other wants to promote racial progress. Michelle Tafoya is fearless. Her obvious courage will be ridiculed, her reputation smeared. She's a one-woman freedom convoy. Are you man or woman enough to join her? Delano has...
started such a massive, huge fire with his own column that uh, we're going to go straight out to Washington, D.C. and bring in the smartest man on the show and let and have a full-throated conversation about the piece uh, that he wrote today, the first paragraph of the piece. One of the most fascinating <laughs> and frustrating things about being a black person with views described as conservative is the constant assumption that you're trying to advance a nefarious, self-serving agenda. Uh, Delano, uh, I don't know if I can do an explanation of your column justice. I, I almost just want to sit back and let you read it on air. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> man, I, I just, I thought this piece was tremendous. Uh, so much of it relates to me when I, I two weeks ago, I had a conversation uh, with a very good friend of mine who lives out in New York, and, and I'm, He's mixed race, he's half Puerto Rican, half white. Uh, and I was trying to explain, he, he thinks there's some great advantage in seeing both sides and, you know, Jason, you, you don't criticize both sides the way you used to mm. and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, nothing's changed with me, man. I have a biblical worldview and there just happens to be one side of the group that seems far more out of alignment with God and his will for us than the other side. And so I just keep pointing out like, hey man, this isn't consistent with my biblical worldview. Anyway, I don't want to distract from that. Please give us an explanation, a summation of your column today. Sure. Um, again, thank you for having me on, Jason. It's. Uh, I was motivated to write this because um, during, you know, the past week when I've been going back and forth with some folks about hip hop and its um, contributions to American society and particularly to black culture, some person responded to me that, you know, my contention that hip hop has normalized and glorified and commodified, you know, violence among black men and the degradation of black women, he said, this is a lie and indicative of someone with an agenda. Now, as usual, he, he didn't offer any counter, no substantive argument. It rarely ever is. And, and, and my, first, uh, my first reflex was to defend myself and say, oh, I don't have an agenda. But I, I thought about it, I said, no, I actually do have an agenda. Um, and, I, and I want to apply maximum pressure um, in the culture, in the policy space, online, wherever I go, to advance that agenda. And, and that agenda, and I said it in the piece, is fairly straightforward is to apply a biblical worldview to matters of policy and culture in order to uh, affirm the, the human dignity um, and the inherent sense of worth uh, that is in all of us as people, black, white, you know, regardless of our race, color, ethnicity, because we are created beings, because we are created by, by God. And this is really a Genesis 127 agenda, right? Where it says that, you know, man, man is created in, in the image of God. And it, it lays out that God is creator, um, that God created male and female, and that each of us is stamped with the, uh, the Latin term is the imago Dei, right? So that that, that sense of, of dignity and worth because um, of who created us, not what we look like, not what we can do. And this is, this is why my positions, I can write about anything from um, slavery, abortion, sex work, uh, criticize hip hop, because all of those things make human worth and value conditional 
on what a particular individual can do in service of another um, or what a particular individual keeps another from doing. So for me, I, I, just, I just want to say that clearly um, and, and, you know, as it relates to race, you know, I, I go through different groups. I talk about how I come into opposition with black liberals. And a lot of that is, is fairly straightforward. You know, we, we talk about how the, the left and, and particularly the black left, the black elite leadership class, how they push all sorts of self-destructive you know, ideologies from um, undermining the nuclear family to uh, eliminating standards in education in, for the sake of equity. But, but the black conservative piece was also important because I think a lot of times people think that all black conservatives want the same things. And there's a group that is really out for you know, economic empowerment and political representation. And those things are, are certainly good things. But I, I came into a little bit of opposition to those folks because these were the people justifying the behavior um, and the, the, the content and the contributions of hip hop artists, rappers for the better part of 30 years because you know they've given X amount of dollars to some charitable organization. And for me, the, the, the defining piece and defining line in, 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 my, um, in my column is, there's no amount of money that you could offer me that would convince me to sexualize my, my wife or my daughter or, or gangsterize my sons for a willing audience. And as I said, temptation may come to, to my family and to our door, but I'll be damned, and I said literally, if I'm the one that feeds them into the devil's mouth. Um, so I, I wanted to make that, that part crystal clear. So if, if we get to the point where the folks on the right, the black conservatives say, no, we, we should support X person or X initiative because they, they're pouring a lot of money in our, into our community. But what also comes with that is a degraded self-image then I, I won't be on board. Just the same way if conservatives in general, the broader sort of conservative establishment becomes the party of drag queen story hour. I'll, I'll just set out every election or I'll, I'll vote for whoever's the most conservative person in a, in a given election and I won't feel any particular way about it because I'm not here to advance anybody's you know, political agenda. As I said in the piece, every group that I named, and I also named evangelicals, every group that I name is concerned with amassing uh, you know, political influence, right? That's why they always talk about speaking truth to power. My agenda is to, is to speak truth to error. Mm. I, I, I like that line, uh, speaking truth to error. And, and I think one of the things I've said to people is like, hey man, I'm trying to have a conversation with black people about, mm. because America's having this con constant conversation for entertainment, for ratings purposes, for whatever, they have this constant conversation going on about black people and about the black community and, and how we move forward and how we advance. And, and, and I'm trying to specifically say to all people, but black people in particular, because that's the conversation America keeps hosting, is that look, if you embrace the pr in principles with, held within the Bible, mm. that's going to move us forward. 
And 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 are you not listening to the people that you're uh, teaming up with on the political thing? They never talk about what the Bible says and what God wants done. And 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 perhaps that's why we're on this hamster wheel of of a lack of success or I don't know how you uh, 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 the destruction of our family. We're not making progress. We're on a hamster wheel. We're going nowhere because we keep divorcing ourselves from a biblical worldview that they have framed as racist and conservative. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I I saw the debates you were having with black conservatives over Twitter. And, and, and one thing that I've seen from black conservatives is, is that they're removing the Bible and religion from their worldview, and they practice a race religion as well. Mm. And, and, and anything that we do, anything you might do in correction of us, well, or are you correcting white people? Right. And, and, and I, I sit there and go, well, I'm not white. Most of my friends happen to be black, even, even though I don't care what color my friend, but this is like asking someone, are you correcting the kids in the other house? Well, those aren't my right. kids. <laughs> and so, I, man, I, I, I loved your column. Uh, I, I'm sure we haven't, there's some other layers in there that I would like for you to, to address. So I'm kind of want to yeah. throw the football back to you. <laughs> so, so I think what you mentioned about, um, you know, the biblical worldview is, is so important. And, and I said in the column, um, a lot of people have heard the phrase, you know, that politics are downstream from culture, right? So the things that are accepted in culture are eventually going to be sort of codified through through our law and public policy. But sociology is also downstream from theology. And what you believe about God ultimately will determine what you believe about man. Mm-hmm.